Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Welcome to the Audite Podcast. Guy Adami, always joined by Dan Nathan and Danny Moses. Today, the penultimate podcast of the year. If you don't know what it means, go to your Google machine. We're going to talk about a little PCE because why not? These zero days to expiry options. China, Taiwan, by the way. It ain't just me talking about it. Apparently, President Xi and President Biden spoke about it a couple weeks ago. What do I know? Some economic data. Danny's got his stuff. How are you, Dan Nathan? I'm doing like penultimate. So that's second to last. Is that no, what we have going on here? Danny, it. did you know that penultimate? That's like a good essay. I did. The word. way that he said it, I figured it out quickly. I could put that puzzle together. Yeah, we're happy smart birthday guys. again. Well, thank you. Guys. I appreciate that. And, you know, Wednesday of this week, Dan, we saw something extraordinarily interesting and rare happen. Market actually sold off, and it sold off in a rather aggressive way. And Danny has some thoughts on that. There's been some work done over the last couple of days trying to explain it. But you know what? We're right back. I mean, we're right back here. I mean, it makes you think of certain things. Well, I'm I know. Sure. I mean, like, you know, Danny, we have this like really sharp and no one can put their finger. Out. There was no tape bomb. There was nothing, you know, fundamental that was out there. Right. And when you see the S&P reverse from being green on the day, I think it was like the 10th up day in like 11 or something like that in an eight uh, consecutive week rally. Right. So we know there's not too many more trading days. We know that we've just defied a lot of logic and, and gravity at this point to see that sort of intraday reversal, you want to figure out what's going on. The fact that here we are Thursday afternoon and we're right back up. I mean, I'm just thinking broke back market here, buddy. Like, like, like we cannot, they cannot quit this thing. They cannot quit stocks. They cannot quit this bull market in 2023. I don't know, Danny, like talk to me. Like when, when you saw that happening and it seemed like a cascading effect too, right? Because it was in a lot of the big names got hit really, really hard. I think because they're the biggest weights in the S&P, but how dare the market go down ever, right? But the fact that, you know, we only hear about it when the market obviously goes down, not up. We've had this happen, tons of volume, zero data to expiration, single names on indices and so forth. And so it caught people's attention when it goes down because then it, oh, it's a problem of some kind. But David Bull over at Baycrest, who writes a daily option note, I think Dan really nailed it. And I think when you mentioned those big names, I think that's just a product of them being 
heavyweights in the S&P going down, but there was certainly a lot of activity. And one other thing of note is that just on the VIX in general, and I mean, it can only go so much lower, right? But it's been going up even on the days where the market was higher. And the interesting break yesterday to me was that the 10-year yields were down seven to eight basis points and the market was down. That was the first time that we've seen that kind of work together or against each other, I should say. What I loved about it also is that, you know, for years, and we've been talking about it on Fast Money Guy, you and me, we've been talking about it on the tape for the last three years. Like people who are so certain of what they think is going on in the options market based on big prints. I've been on these desks. We've all been on these desks. We've traded these products. Oftentimes it could be a hedge against something out. It could be something, a roll. It could be a spread. It could be your risk risk manager tapped you on the shoulder and you do the thing with the least amount of notional value that basically at least gets him or her off your back for a little bit. What was interesting about this note, though, is that Bull just highlights the fact that, yes, there were two large prints in the dailies. This started at 2.30 in the afternoon, right? Height of complacency in the markets because we could kind of been melting up for the last few days or last few weeks in the late in the afternoon. But he highlights the fact maybe it was a spread, maybe it was this. But the way that these puts were bought, okay, and the way that the dealers who are on the other side, who are probably equally complacent for a little bit, what they have to do to hedge, whether it be in other expiries that are longer dated that don't expire to cash at the end of the day, maybe it's in futures, maybe it's gamma hedging, a whole host of other things without getting too far in the weeds, that is the sort of thing that could cause the sort of movement that we had. And so who knows, you know, we're going into expiration on Friday. There's a lot of things that could happen all at once that has the ability to turn this into something more than just an hour and a half sort of thing, which leads me to the point, the broke back market thing is like, they can't quit it. They're right back to them. They're ripping them, right? Like a lot of the stuff that got hit two, 3% is up one and a half, 2%. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't enough to put together a string of a couple days, but it also leads me to believe that sometimes you just get these funky sort of things that somebody thought an opportunity to put $20 million in notional and they were willing to test a strategy to see what would happen. But that could also pretend to some really scary things that happens in the new year. Are you familiar with the name Dan Willie Dixon? I am not. It's unfortunate. Danny Moses, I'll ask you the same question. It's yes or no, please just no, indulge me. No, I don't me. think so. No, you're not. Not, but, not, uh, not even off the top of my head. What, I, what I'll say is Willie Dixon wrote the song, I Can't Quit You Baby. And as you both know, in 1969, the debut album of Led Zeppelin contained the song I Can't Quit You Baby and that's where we are that's where my mind goes and by the way I believe it was 1974 not that anybody cares was my first introduction to the aforementioned Led Zeppelin I believe I was 10 or 11 years old at the time but to Danny's point and I think this is important when the market's going higher and it's pretty clear that these zero days to expiry options are contributing in some capacity to it nobody says a word but on days where clearly they had some hand in this going lower, everybody becomes somewhat apoplectic and they're looking for somebody to blame. What I'll say is this, Dan, and I believe this in my all of my heart, these people behind these are market agnostic. As a matter of fact, if you were really to ask them, things go down a lot faster than they go up. So if they can sort of tap into something on the downside and start to make money, to your earlier point, be very careful because they might have just unearthed something moving forward into 2024. Yeah, and Danny, you know, 
know, this is one of the things when you look back to some of the, you remember in, in the throes of the, the, the sell-off in March of 2020, where Bill Ackman came on CNBC crying like a you-know-what, and he had that big trade on, and he was like, hell's coming with us, you know, all that sort of stuff. I mean, a lot of those folks use very sophisticated options trades that are across different products also. They lever them up maybe with options. They're using futures. They're doing a whole host of things. The whole idea is to put as little money to work with defined risk that have the potential to, you know, and I don't want to throw words out like convexity. You can go Google that. People that have the ability to actually explode in value, right? And I guarantee you some of the smartest minds on Wall Street are taking a very close look at what happened yesterday in one hour, right? And if you look at the notional that was put to work and the potential of the profit that could have been realized by year end, those are the sorts of things where people are trying to look at the market structure. And Danny, you've been talking about this for months and months and months. The market structure and some of these new products have the potential to cause an uncertain amount of volatility. And if everything comes together at once, that's how you get the sort of meltdowns that actually break the back of some of the movement or the momentum that we've had over the last, call it two months or so. Yeah. And it's not just human mind, it's the computer mind, I think, that picks up on these trends. And I've talked about for years now, the lack of the brokers being able to hold and provide this type of capital is going to create this type of volatility, right? So hedges normally could be done, you know, over the counter behind the scenes at some of these big Wall Street banks. That's not happening as much anymore. You see names like Citi, which are closing down their high yield desk, right? Which I'm sure had done a lot of hedging during the time. But let's keep in mind, I do think that there, there is a manipulation aspect to this option that I think some of these models have figured out, not necessarily with the S&P trade yesterday. You think about all the single name options we've been talking about for, and listen, calls and puts you can push around, but there is there are certainly ways, especially on low volume weeks, like we're supposed to be having right now, where you can certainly push around just single names and some of these indices for sure. I use those as an advantage to the downside and to the upside. When you see those occur in single names and you own a stock, sell into it. If you want to buy more of a stock and it's a, it's a kind of a put parade, then buy it. Just be aware and use it, you know, kind of as a technical into your fundamental analysis because volatility is here to stay. And these type of option trading that we've seen, no one's going to take away these zero data to expiry options. They are here to stay. Believe me, SIBO's come out and said how great the product is and they think it creates efficiencies in the market. So it's not going anywhere. So get get used to it, I guess. But it does have the potential to actually add, um, you know, other like, let's say, margin requirements and the like. And that's one of the reasons why so much retail has been attracted to it. The other thing, Dan, that people are looking at is the condition of the market. You know, we talk about market... But the market in terms of indicators, and one of the things everybody looks at is something called the Relative Strength Index, the RSI. And it's at levels in terms of overbought that we haven't seen in quite some time. And a lot of people, myself included, thinks that portends obviously to a pretty meaningful sell-off. Now, earlier this week, we saw that, but there's a counter to that. And Ryan Dietrich, who does extraordinary work, he put out a tweet earlier this week more than 40% of the components of the S&P 500 have hit an RSI greater than 70, which is on the higher end of things in terms of RSI. And he says this is a super overbought condition. However, we have seen indications like this in January of 75, October of 82, February 91, July of 20, and now, and all the times and those indications that the market was up some 25.5% on average in the wake of that. I'll say this. He might wind up being right at the end of 2024. The problem, of course, is is how we get there, Danny. And I'm telling you, when you overlay an RSI that was north of 82 for the broader market on top of this fear greed indicator, which is flashing red on the greed side of the equation, on the backdrop 
of an S&P 500 that's effectively retraced the entire move from December of 2021, you got a bit of a witch's brew. Not least of which, what also happened on Wednesday was the news wires picked up that earlier this month, President Xi and President Biden spoke, and President Xi told President Biden that they will take over Taiwan by any means necessary. Not my words, his. So throw all that into the mixer, Danny. Put it on blend, and what type of drink do you come out with? Uh, bearish cocktails. No, certainly, again, we talked about this. Geopolitics is underpriced. I think that the bull bear, those are pretty certain things over a period of maybe even days or at the most a week when you get those type of extreme bullish signals, right? Just be honest with yourself. And here's the other thing I'm noticing. All the pundits, yes, that are taking victory laps that had these calls and everything. People are now not just apologizing if they were bearish, separate. Broadcasters are saying, in, you know, with the market trading down yesterday, let me just say, and I'm not bearish by any means, but is that a sign that maybe the market's a little overbought or, you know, the market sold off? And by the way, I think it actually might be a buying opportunity, but people are so scared right now to make any bearish call at all on top of what these indicators are saying. I'm just noticing in the public because everybody's on board. And I think we saw an article come out in the last couple of days that more retail investors own the market than ever before. I think it has spread through the entire demographic. So something to take notice of also it's not, it's not that it's a fad thing. It's that it's, it's accessible, which is great. But I think it's become part of people's everyday life. And I think that's something to really consider here as we turn the calendar. Yeah. And to your point, Guy, about the RSI. So the last time we saw a reading this high, it was in uh, mid-July. Um, that coincided with the S&P getting to 4,600 and topping out there and having a sell-off from 4,600 down to its lows in October at about 4,100 or so. So here we are. We went from uh, October 27th, 4,100, just to about, what, 4,750 or something like that. And one of the things that I would just mention about all that complacency that you're talking about, guys, so we also had a VIX that kind of stopped at 12. Did you guys notice that? It didn't melt down, right? And this is also where we've had rates. I thought this was interesting yesterday, that yesterday was the lowest close on the 10-year since, I want to say, the summer, you know, like mid-July also again. And so you've been making this point, Guy, that at some point, a further precipitous drop in yields might be not perceived as positive for stocks, positive for the economy. What is the reason why they continue to go lower? So yields were down and stocks were down. This was Wednesday afternoon. So I thought that was really interesting. The other thing I'd say is that when the S&P broke out and made a new 52-week high, I want to say it was about December 11th. So here we are, we're recording this on December 21st, right? And so we had this near 4% melt up, right? So it, it kind of felt a little bit like window dressing, a little bit of a chase. So going back to the activity that we saw yesterday, it didn't take a whole heck of a lot to disturb the Apple cart. And the last thing I'll just say is if you are bullish, okay, heading into 2024, one of the best things that might happen is a VIX in the high teens and an S&P back below 4,600 in the not so distant future. Because at least what it does is takes a little bit of the froth out. Because I'm talking to friends of mine who are on the other side of my bearish call in the S&P 500 who've been very bullish who are thinking, they're getting a little nervous right now because they're thinking things are overheated. And when everybody's back in the pool, we generally know what happens. There's so many things to be concerned about. And the things that I've been concerned about have not gone away. They've not been mitigated in any way, shape or form. In a lot of senses, they've gotten worse. You know, I'll mention this, and I know you look at this pretty closely. If we get to February, which is effectively two months away, Danny, and we still have an inverted yield curve, which really appears to be the case because I think we're about 50 or so basis points inverted now. That will be the longest duration, I think, since they started looking at these types of metrics. Historically, and you go back and look, the longer the inversion, the worse the downturn is. And you have so many people out there 
Deutsche Bank, Wells Fargo, Citibank, all these strategists coming out and saying there are things to be concerned about. And the one thing that I look at and, and you know, it keeps coming back to me is because nothing's happened yet doesn't mean the inevitability of all this is not going to happen. And I'm surprised that things haven't sort of taken hold sooner. But, you know, you read from Citibank, Andrew Hollinsworth. We think the effects of higher interest rates are finally having the expected effect of slowing the U.S. economy. We see increasing signs in the labor market, something we've talked about, including a rise in unemployment rate and continuing jobless claims that suggest hiring will slow. I mean, I can go on and on. My point is this. All the things we've been concerned about are still there. The fact that they haven't sort of come to fruition in terms of the market doesn't mean it's not. It just means I think the inevitability has just been pushed off a little bit. Well, what I have a problem with reconciling here is people that are calling for 10 to 12% S&P earnings growth next year and a slew of rate cuts. Something about that just doesn't work for me. If the Fed's going to be really aggressive next year, it's not because earnings are going are, are you know accelerating. It's because things are massively slowing. And can certain companies, maybe in the energy sector as a one-off, which is not big enough for the S&P to drive some earnings growth? Yes, but I just don't see those two things marrying. So when you start to see forecasts of double-digit earnings growth and the Fed cutting five to six times, that doesn't work for me. To your point you make about an inverted yield curve, I would look at it this way. If we basically steepen and de-invert, if, if I can use that word, it means that the Fed is aggressively cutting because the two-year yields that we've seen, which they kind of control more of towards the shorter end, have now dropped to basically 4.35%. So what could happen? That two-year yield starts to drop to three, three and a quarter, right? And maybe, maybe things are slowing dramatically down and we stay inverted and the tenure just keeps pushing lower. But here's where I, I was actually talking about this with someone yesterday. You start to think about, again, what the problem was two to three months ago. What is the credit worthiness of the U.S., right? And you look at Germany, which the 10-year boon has now dropped below 2%. But I looked at it, and I'm like, their debt to GDP, I think, is around 65% or something in that, in that realm. It doesn't scare you. In the U.K., it's one-to-one. -one, so it's a little bit higher. But here, we're 125, maybe 135, maybe even 140 debt to GDP. So when yields are low like that under being pressed, you figure it's cyclical. But if our yields can't go lower because there's a secular, then all bets are off. And I don't even want to put my brain there. So I guess, Guy, a long-winded way of answering your question, a lot goes into figuring out if you, if you gave me the yield curve, whether it was inverted or not, right, and what those I would have to put the puzzle together. I just don't see a situation where I can see earnings growth with lots of rate cuts. Yeah, the one thing I'll just say as far as the rate cuts are concerned, and one of the biggest takeaways I had from Fed Chair Powell's presser last week is that he was asked the question, you know, like, listen, everyone is focused on this kind of mission accomplished sort of thing, right? He said that we are going to start to cut rates before inflation gets 2%. He didn't say that inflation is definitely going back to 2%. He didn't say any, give any timetable. You know, we looked at the dots. We're expecting, you know, three cuts next year. And so I like, I respect that. That is what the consensus is right now. That is essentially calling for a soft landing that they don't want. If inflation drops faster than expected, they don't want their policy to be too restrictive. What are they worried about? Well, if it's too restrictive, then it has the potential to slow the economy at a greater pace. But all of that means threading a needle, right? And so I guess we've asked, I guess I have asked almost every strategist that we have had on Fast Money, on the tape, on Market Call, is that just, again, in my career, 
year when the Fed, after a rate hiking cycle, then they pause. That's the period that's been great for stocks. That's what we've been in this year, right? Because we've had this 23% move in the S&P 500. It's when they start cutting, right? You might think, well, that's great for risk assets, but when they start to accelerate those cuts, because that's what happened in 2000. That's what happened in 2007. It's obviously what happened in 2020, while that is a, a fairly unique sort of scenario. So that's the thing that I'd worry about. And that's the disparity, in my opinion, between what markets are pricing right now for a soft landing. And then the point, Danny, that you just made is that sort of unexpected. And I want to make one last point because um, on the geopolitical thing, on, on President Xi and what he supposedly said to Biden about Taiwan, we have a very special on the tape podcast that's going to drop on 26. You call that Boxing Day, don't you, guys? Of course, I'm a big fan of Boxing Day. Yeah, you are. There's probably some good. Ma- oh, we got to talk about Danny's Premier League pick. I mean, I mean, Danny Moses I mean, said, I know I there know. was a bet to be made. A draw as an outcome is a bet you wanted to make. And I actually texted the group on Sunday. Not that I watched that shit, but there was a. Dr- I mean, that must have been a scintillating zero nil 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 on the, the pitch. Was it but Danny nil? Moses nailed that one? Yeah. But on Boxing Day, we have Mike Novogratz, who's the CEO of Galaxy, legendary macro investor. We spent a lot of time on the macro, and it's interesting. And we obviously talked about crypto and his expectations for that going forward. But he had some really interesting guy and, and non-consensus commentary about China and Taiwan. And it was actually really thought-provoking. It led me down a couple of rabbit holes. We'll let you guys listen to that on Tuesday, and maybe we'll address it again next week on the, on the, on the final. 100%. On the and you should listen because we actually, Danny, you brought up debt to GDP here in the United States. It was Mike Novogratz who years ago in a conversation that I had with him said, you know, no developed economy in the history of mankind has been able to recover from debt to GDP levels of about 130%, yet here we are now. So you should listen to that podcast which drops on Boxing Day. But I think it's it. we had a similar conversation, but I think we all think about different outcomes here, Danny. But you are correct. And it's interesting to see also quickly, Danny, Bank of Japan. I think they sort of surprised some people staying as dovish as they are. They're staying with the negative interest rate policy, which is fascinating. And I got to tell you something. You still have quantitative tightening going on here. And we're still a long ways away from probably where the Fed's balance sheet should be. So some thoughts on that. When in doubt, I guess, just pick the dovish side of things to any central bank in the world. I want to make a comment. So I was talking to Porter and Vinny just about Powell's kind of Christmas pivot, whatever they're calling it these days. And James Aiken, who's a brilliant guy, runs Aiken Advisors. He talks to just a brilliant group of macro traders. And the thought was that Powell has someone in his ear, that whether it's private credit, whether it's a CLO market, similar to what happened kind of what 2018, whatever, when the fear came back to the market said, hold on here, you know, we're rolling the calendar in 2024. Yes, the stock market's up. Yes, inflation's come down. There's some issues here. And so we need to get kind of ahead of this because to Dan's point, people are trying to explain why would you be so aggressive, turn so dovish, lose that credibility. And God forbid now that inflation pops back up again, you know, it's not gonna have much left. But yeah, guy on Bank of Japan, they had an opportunity here again to basically say we're going to, and they may do something on this NERP come the next meeting in January, but you saw what happened. I mean, their 10 year yields, right, have gone now back below 0.6%. The yen initially after that obviously got weaker. And now it's actually strengthened a bit, I think, at the 143, 144 level. And then on the shorter end of their curve, we had that quote, I say this in jest, massive move from four basis points to nine, I think, on their two year. And we're back down to like the four or five. But anyway, point is that like these countries have an opportunity to kind of take a stance. And I think we're kind of missing it. But, you know, we'll see what happens. But again, we are completely reliant on the Fed. And the last comment you made, Guy, about, 
kind of quantitative tightening and quantitative easing. I went back and looked and I keep seeing comparisons to pre-COVID. What was pre-COVID? Because that was, quote, a normal environment, although we still had $4 trillion on the Fed's balance sheet. We're still at $7.7 trillion. I looked at the chart. It's going to take, obviously, years to whittle our way down below four. But as we kind of make that move towards four and we normalize kind of into this economy for 2024, something to keep an eye on because you're going to keep seeing these comparisons. But with the Fed pulling liquidity as opposed to putting it in, I think it makes it a lot harder. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections' membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. There's some great financial dailies or, you know, papers. Periodicals. Periodicals, Financial Times, Forbes, The Wall Street Journal. The Bloomberg. Bloomberg. I don't necessarily think of the New York Times through that lens. Except the deal book, ARS. He's got oh, a I love Andrew Ross Sorkin. He's, he's I mean, that's man. sort of like, he's a, it, that's an he's oasis. On the, he's on your Mount Rushmore. In the middle though. of the yeah. desert. Yeah, yeah. But I only mentioned it because there was an article out this week, and I, they may as well have interviewed Danny Moses, because it talks about Americans taking on too much debt in this phantom buy now, pay later thing that's sort of become, again, to use the term, de rigueur. And I will tell you, Danny's had a lot of thoughts on this over the last couple of years, but now people are writing about it, Danny. And I think there are a lot of reasons to be concerned about the consumer, not least of which this thing that has sort of caught caught fire over the last year or so. Listen, we started this podcast in January 2021, the same time that Affirm AFRM went public. We've all seen this together as this has gone on. So what happened this past week was that Walmart at their at the self-checkout kiosk, you, you can now use a firm as a as a payment choice, right? And so they were already integrated at Walmart to a degree. They're integrated with Amazon. But think about this. They pride themselves on telling consumers it's a soft credit pull, so there's no change to your credit at all. We we check you, we check your FICO basically, and that's it. So I don't know whether average is around the 600 level or whatever it might be. But if you miss a payment, and this is where the CFPB down in D.C. is keeping an eye on, you actually credit will be impacted. They'll write that off completely. So the growth has been astronomical because as the economy has been weakening, right, and people are maxed out on their credit cards, this is a choice you can make. And there's two ways to look at this, that how, how a firm conducts business. I don't have a problem with it. This is how it is. They either get the merchants to sell their product at a discount, effectively factoring the product, so there's no credit risk to that to them or the consumer. And then there's a the part that the consumer then pays back a firm literally on a loan, zero interest, et cetera. So 
for payments over time. Problem is this, the numerator is obfuscating the entire fraction. The growth has been so massive, obviously, because it's filling a void here for people that would normally not be able to take out a credit card, that delinquencies and charge offs, while they're still rising, appear to be, quote, okay. But what a firm is being forced to do now is to portfolio some of these loans that they're originating, right, from the consumer as opposed to selling them. Rates coming down help them, obviously. So last thing I'll say on this, and I want to compare it to something else, is that the CFO has basically sold stock four times. He sold stock the day that they announced this Walmart deal on the 19th, I believe, two days ago, literally at $50. The last three times he sold the stock were February of 2022 at 66. A few months later, we were at 18. March 2021, sold at 87. A few months later, we were 54. And November of 21, 154. A few months later, we were in the 50s. So again, Morgan Stanley had just downgraded the stock literally the day before they announced this deal. And one of the things they said was that they're seeing deterioration in the credit and so forth. So let me just take a firm, which is a kind of a nouveau credit company, if you want to call it that, to an old school CarMax, which went public in 1997. These companies basically have the same market cap, either like 12 or 13 or $14 billion, something like that. CarMax has seen every cycle the world. Stock is up today because they have better earnings and lower revenue. They've decided to stop lending out as much. They've decided to use that money instead to start to buy back stock again. So when you look at these companies that have been through cycles before and a firm has never really been through a cycle, believe me, I covered buy now, pay later, short now, cover later, and I stick by that. And I think the stock's very expensive. So again, old school lending company versus new school. And I think that the new school will end up getting hurt. You know what, but Danny, this is deep end of the pool stuff for you. Some of your smart hedge fund pals to kind of short this thing, right? Because it's got 22 and a half percent short interest. You know, obviously they don't earn money. They're expected to lose, I think on a $1.8 billion in revenues, maybe like $800 million this year. You know what I mean? This is a 40% gross margin business. It's not even that, that good of a business. You'd think that they'd be able to kind of build in it, but it's a hard short, right? Like, like I think you make a great point. Look where it was. It was down 95% at its lows a year ago, right? And now it's up a few hundred percent or whatever. So it's just, uh, you know, I think it's really important to call out the behavior, like the behavior of consumers by the, the sentiment as it relates to investors. You know what I mean? Just on the chart, I know guys looking at this, that $50 level is a level here a little bit, but it's just a hard one. Unless you wanted to trade, let's say puts, put spreads, short call spreads. I mean, there are ways to do it with defined risk. It's going to cost you. It's funny. You're hundred percent right. And the macro of that, your, to your point, lender of last resort, we talked about the setup that savings rates are at a low, that people are tapped out on their credit card. Let me get a quote, interest-free loan to buy something and I'll pay it over a period of three, four, five, six months, 100%. So the growth, this GMV as they call it, is there. I believe to your point, Dan, you're making, it's trading off of that growth. And I think it will shift dramatically to the credit side of the equation because that is what a financial company is. And this book value is around six or $7. We talked about the multiple book for Upstart, same type thing. So this will happen, but I, I guess it's important because I believe this company is a microcosm of the economy and the stock market of people that misappropriate a multiple on what should be a financial or a credit company, not a tech company, and that take advantage of a slowing economy guy. That's exactly where I was going to go. Like I'm not necessarily interested in these companies and their stocks if they're going up or down. This is the way I look at it. And this goes back to the article that we cited, this American may be taking on too much paid later phantom debt from the New York Times. We'll put it in the show notes. But buy now, pay later loans are helping to fuel record-setting holiday shopping season. Economists worry they could also be masking and exacerbating the Americans' financial well-being. Tim Quinlan, who's an economist at Wells Fargo, the more I dig into it, 
the more concerned I am talking about phantom debt. So traditional things are fine, but I think to your point, Danny, a lot of this could be masking some of the problems that we've been trying to point out for quite some time. So the health of the U.S. consumer in terms of their spend, I mean, if that's the only metric you want to say, they're in great shape. But the question is, and again, this article sort of speaks to that, Dan, should they be spending? I mean, listen, you know, we're going into, uh, the, you know, the, the final week of this holiday spending season. We've had really positive consumer confidence, you know, readings. I think that has something to do with the housing market loosening up, with rates coming in, with the stock market right back to all-time highs. And let's see, you know, we had that unemployment rate tick down a little bit at that last print. I think that the volatility and the economic data probably increases in the new year a little bit. But I'll just say this, like the last thing I'll say, and I got the direction of the S&P wrong for the better part of this year. We got something right on the sector level, individual stock level and the like. And, you know, I can see how just listening to what Fed Chair Powell had to say and some of the commentary about it, I think Danny made a really important point because it seems like the dovishness has to do with something less about dropping the mic on slaying inflation and more about what lurks beneath, what comes next. And I think that's a really important point to say, highlight this phantom debt situation. We just spent some time talking about debt to GDP, right, at levels that seem, you know, unsustainable. So my point is, like, I can see a scenario where the stock market has way outshot the opportunities for the economy and for S&P earnings, and therefore we are due for a reset. But I can also see a scenario where maybe some of the dynamics post pandemic um, and maybe some of the productivity gains that we've had with technology and this and whatever that may, maybe they did as you use the term guy all the time maybe the Fed did alchemy out recessions you know, you know what I'm saying and maybe we are going to be in for maybe slower growth low unemployment higher productivity sort of environment and maybe they've also taken out a lot of the volatility in the stock market who knows because we spent the better part of 2022 remarking how orderly that sell-off was in the stock market until we got to that sort of crescendo in late October October, and that was it. A lot to be watching into the new year, and we will surely be talking about it. One of the things that we've been talking about is Danny Moses' record in the National Football League, the league where they play for pay. Danny comes into week 16. Terrible. A, you used the word, not me. I was going to say a fair 23 and 21. The last couple of weeks have been difficult. I'll say this. And Danny may or may not agree with me. There's a game on Christmas Day. I think it's the last game on Christmas Day that very well might be the prelude to the Super Bowl. The Ravens of Baltimore will be playing the 49ers of San Francisco. That is a, if you're an NFL fan, that's a much watch game. There's another must watch game just in the form of. I've never seen a beatdown the way I saw the Chargers get beat down by the Raiders. The Chargers are playing the Bills on Saturday, December 23rd. But I don't want to steal your thunder, Danny. What do you got for us? Just so people know, I put my money where my mouth is. That was other than the soccer game that I hit on the plus 475 on the draw between uh, Man U and Liverpool. Uh, that was erased by the 0-3 NFL weekend and then a push. Um, so I'm going to have to bounce back here strong. I'm not picking either of those games. I think the Baltimore-San Fran game is awesome. The line's five. I think that line's about right. Kind of don't really love that either way. I would take the Niners if I had to pick it. But I'm going to take Dallas going into Miami after that ugly showing. Dallas just had, obviously, up in Buffalo. Getting one and a half in Miami. Miami is totally banged up. Their offensive line is out. I think Tyreek Hill is out. Mostert's out. Anyway, 
Give me Dallas plus the one and a half. And then I think the Chiefs are getting right. And I think the Raiders, yes, they did have that big win guy. But and the Chiefs are laying 10 at home on Christmas Day. Give me the Chiefs and lay the wood. So just two picks this week, guy, Dallas and the Chiefs. You sound like a beaten gambler. But if you emerge <laughs> this week 2-0, and you will come guns a-blazing. You got that right. Next week. We want to wish everybody an extraordinarily Merry Christmas. Enjoy the time with your friends and family. We will be back, obviously, next week. But we want to thank everybody for being being with us this year and we look forward to moving forward dan into 2024 big things in 2024 thanks for all of your support so we'll see you. we got some good stuff next week so stick around next week all right thanks everyone thanks again to our presenting sponsors cme group i connections and FactSet. if you like what you heard make sure you hit follow and leave us a review it helps other people find the show and we also want to hear from you email us at contact at riskreversal.com derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made this communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy sell or retain any specific investment or service.